So tonight I want to share with you a little bit about what we're seeing and what I'm seeing and what God's teaching me about what kind of a moment we're in culturally. How can we think well about that? How can we be faithful to what God's always done throughout the ages? He doesn't wring his hands and look down at American culture or life today and and say, I don't know what's happening. No, he sees it. And what he's looking for are faithful people to show up in the midst of that. People who can actually create some order out of the chaos, who can see truth in the midst of a world that no longer regards truth as, as meaningful. And so I want to help you tonight. I want to help hopefully equip you to start seeing in some of those ways. And then we're going to get into Scripture. We're going to see uh, how Scripture helps us remember who it is that we're called to be in the midst of these cultural moments. You see, one of the things that's caught my attention in the last couple of years is, is essentially just how distracted we are as a society. Are any of you, do, do you find yourself a bit distracted right now? Would you raise your hand? Maybe it's the phone. You know, the, the data shows that we're touching our phone 2,600 times a day. 2,600. You think about all the taps, you know, or when we look at just social media use and how much the average adult, two hours a day, but the average 8 to 18-year-old, nine hours a day spent in social media apps, connecting, trying to stay connected, trying to stay in the know, trying to keep up with friends. Right, we know that a lot of our accidents today, car accidents, are due to distracted driving now, something that a decade ago was not even a discussion. You know, even in our own private time, our, our quiet time, or the time where we're just trying to take a break from it all, how hard is it to put the phone down? We know that almost 8 out of 10 people check their phone first thing in the morning as it sits by their nightstand or wherever they placed it. Right? And this is just one of the realities of life in 2019. It's not just the adults, not just kids, it's, it's all of us. And so part of that distraction, I think, bleeds out into the larger challenges we have for today. You know, if I were the enemy, and you know, as Christians, we do believe there's an enemy. We believe there's an enemy who's active, who wants to kind of distract us, who wants to keep us off our game, doesn't want us to necessarily see clearly what's really happening around us, wants us to be a little myopic and individualistic and focused on ourselves. So if I were him, I would want the church distracted, I'd want society distracted, I'd want people not to see clearly, I'd want them to see dimly. But when we start to see dimly, when there's a fog, we start to lose confidence, we don't know what to do, our reaction speed starts to slow down a little bit, we start to let new things into our mind and our imagination that maybe a decade or two ago we never would have imagined being a part of our life. But now it's in our TV shows, it's in the things that we're watching and consuming And it just is. And so as we start to understand a little more about our context, let's remember that being distracted can sometimes be something that the enemy uses to keep us from knowing how to respond or react in the moment, right when we're needing to respond the most and the best and with the clearest thinking. The second thing happening in our current cultural context is, is it's interesting, it's this idea of truth. And the idea that is there really truth and how can you know it? Now, this is a question that has been asked throughout the ages, but it's a really interesting moment in 2019 to realize that for a lot of people, they don't know what is true anymore. They don't know how to find it. In fact, we know that for the average teenager, the place they get their best advice and the place they go for their advice is Google, okay? Instead of sitting down and talking to a parent or a trusted adult, Google's the place they're looking up to see, you know, what's a great way to ask a girl on a first date? 
or how should I shave, or how do I tie a tie, and, and Google becomes the expert, the mentor, the, the wise person in the room to help us process this. Well, when it comes to knowing truth, we know that there's been a lot of letdowns. We can understand why people no longer trust authorities as much or structures. They look at institutions and they believe, are you really serving me or am I just serving you? They look at our government, they look at Congress, they look at the approval ratings and they go, you know what, this isn't working. I've been told to trust this, but it's not working out so well. We know a lot of college students who go off to college and invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in an education and then have a hard time finding a job that's in the lane that they were trying to pursue. And they're stuck with this mounting debt. They feel like they've been taken. You know, or we know there's a major mental health crisis happening right now. We know that for our teenagers, suicide rates are at an all-time high. We know that even as people have the ability to be connected more than ever, they actually feel less connected. They feel more lonely. And we're living in a moment where middle-age suicide is higher than we've ever seen it. We were talking at our Q conference just a few weeks ago. Senator Ben Sass gave a talk, and he was sharing about this epidemic and what's happening and how we've never seen this happen where the life expectancy is going down amongst this middle-aged group of people. Usually the middle age is, is safe, it's secure, it's the older people who, who tend to, to die sooner, but now all of a sudden we're seeing between the ages of 25 and 44 a spike in deaths. Suicide, PTSD, loneliness, hopelessness. 2016, the, the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was a hyphenated word, it was the word post-truth. They're acknowledging that we're now in a new space where we're beyond truth where we can't agree on what's true. And don't we feel that? Even morally? Those of you who, who claim to follow Jesus, I know there's some maybe just curious in the room tonight. Why does this church get together on Wednesday nights and talk about things that matter? But in a world right now where we don't agree on what's true, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, it's a recipe for chaos. Rod Dreher says it like this. He's an author of a book called The Benedict Option. He says, no society who has abandoned truth or a common way of figuring it out can survive. You see, once you start to lose the foundation where everybody's opinion matters as much as the other person and your opinion is your, your truth and my opinion's my truth, and isn't that now just part of the discourse? That's your truth. You see, truth is truth. It exists outside of my opinion about it. It exists outside of my feelings about it. Truth just is. And when we start to lose our way and we don't know what's true anymore and we actually think we can rely on ourselves, we think we can just rely on our feelings, our emotions, and how we respond to something, we start to find ourselves in a dim-lit place. And we don't know how to lead ourselves, and we certainly don't know how to lead those around us who are struggling and hurting and longing for truth and longing for answers to serious questions that, that are, are, are weighing on their minds and on their hearts and their soul. Now, you add into that in this current context, not only that we're distracted, not only that we don't know what's true anymore, but that for people of faith, we're, we're now in American culture, we're living in a moment where there's a real sense that... that being a person of faith is a negative. You know, religion has become the, the bad word in the room. 
In the, the book that Laura was mentioning, Good Faith, we did a research study that, that really laid out where Americans are at right now about religion and faith. And, and the data came back, and it was so strong, we had to kind of double-check it and make sure we were reading it right. But 46% of Americans believe that religion is part of the problem in our society, not part of the solution. 42% said people of faith are part of the problem in our society. People like you and me who care about our faith, who know it's meaningful to our lives, that know it calls us to love our neighbors, to be doing good in our communities, that we're actually part of the problem. There was kind of two words that summed up what the research laid out for us. One was that people see faith, religion, Christianity as pretty irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. You know, maybe it's something that's good for you, but for them, on Wednesday night, they're like, why would I go spend an evening talking about faith in my life? That's just something that makes people feel good. I'm not sure that it really impacts us, or I'm not sure how it impacts us. And there's been a slow decline. We've seen irrelevance become something over the last 20 to 30 years that just has crept in, where, where people no longer think of faith or think of church or think of the community that's involved in religion or faith communities as important. They don't recognize how much faith actually is part of the good in society. When we talk to the younger generations, they believe if churches and faith communities or faith-inspired ministries or organizations were just to go away, that the government would take care of everything. It'd be fine. But we know when we look at the hospital beds across this country, almost 60% of them are faith-based hospital beds. Think of the Catholic hospital, the Baptist hospital, the United Methodists, and these places that have been built because Christians understood that we had a role to play in our society. And it wasn't just for us, it was to love and serve our neighbor well. But in addition to the idea of being irrelevant, we started to see in the research that, that people were using a stronger word to describe Christians. And it was the idea that what we believe is extreme, that we're extreme, that our faith is no longer just a nice, irrelevant thing, and, and, and if you want to practice it, then go ahead and practice it, but it doesn't really harm me. Now to saying, actually, your faith, your ideas, the things you believe are bad for society. They're harmful. And you see, once somebody starts to label you um, as extreme, what, what can start to happen is they start to feel kind of a moral authority in the situation to push you kind of out of that central place, right? Once you're labeled, and we've seen this word now the last couple of years be used more and more and more, the idea of extremism. You see, just five years ago, the word extremism was used to define what was taking place in the Middle East. We, we had the rise of ISIS. We had a moment where there was a lot of discussion around ideology around religion and how it was driving people to kill other people, and rightly called that extremism and, and called it something that it was extreme would be known to have violence associated with it. We well, kind of track the use of that word just a couple of years later, and all of a sudden it's starting to show up more normal in conversations about just ideas, not actually violence, but that your ideas are extreme. And now even today we start to see the idea of Christian faith and just some basics that Christians have believed and all world religions have believed, whether it's about sexual ethics and marriage, whether it's about life, issues like that that are now viewed as hate, viewed as extreme. And so the moral authority almost switches to the other side to where they say, look, your ideas aren't good for society. We're going to do everything we can to alienate those ideas. And so if you're young and you're growing up in that environment, it's kind of all you've known. If you've grown up in a different environment and you've seen this start to expand in recent years, you can get a little fearful. You can get a little concerned, rightly so. 
because everything that you knew and, and all the assumptions that you were working with have all shifted, and so the ground is shifting, and it can be very disconcerting. In my own life, I was in, in sixth grade. I remember the moment when um, my youth pastor shared this message. It was so convicting, and, and you know, I was only 12, but I came to this realization that I really had never decided that I wanted to follow Jesus. I'd grown up kind of in a Christian space. I mean, everybody I knew were Christians, but it was just that moment. And, and if you've had that moment in your life, you know what I'm talking about, where just in an instant, in a flash, you recognize that I've never made this commitment. I've thought about it. I've heard it's a nice idea, but I've never made that decision. I remember in sixth grade, 12 years old, kneeling down beside my bed at night, my mother coming in, confessing just, just the sin that I knew of at age 12. And asking God to come and be my Lord, my Savior. Something more grounding and rooting than just my own ideas about how I was going to live life. And I remember getting on the phone with my friends that week and picking it up and calling my friends who went to church with me, went to the Christian school that I attended. And I remember calling all of them and making sure that they were Christians too. And, and I was met with laughter from some of them, like, what are you talking about, Gabe? Of course I'm a Christian. We go to school together. I go, no, but do you really know? Have you really made a decision? Have you, have you had a moment where you've acknowledged that, that you yourself can't get there on your own, that you need something else? And we'd have these great conversations, and, I, and I'd look back on that as the years went on and thought, man, that fervency of those first moments when you really come to know your sin and the weight of it, and you realize the kind of chaos it can create in your life, and then you acknowledge that there's a Savior and that there's somebody who's, who's paid the price for that, to redeem that, and that he has a purpose and a plan and a meaning in your life. It's a significant moment. But as I got older, I remember in my 20s, early 20s, starting to feel a little embarrassed to be a Christian. I don't know if you've ever, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to acknowledge this, but there, there'll be moments where you just feel like, man, I don't think I want to speak up right now. This is not going to be good for me socially. You're hanging out with friends who just have some different points of view or that maybe there's some activities going on that you realize wouldn't go over so well if everybody in, in your church knew that it was going on. And so you just kind of shut it down a little bit and go, I'm not sure I'm going to talk about my faith. You're a little bit embarrassed. And, and I was embarrassed. Partly I was embarrassed because so much of what my friends thought about Christianity in general I knew was not true of what Jesus had said about Christianity. I mean, he didn't talk about Christianity, but what he talked about in terms of following him and what it really meant. I knew that most of the friends that I was hanging out with looked at Christians as really judgmental, right? That we were only interested in telling people what was wrong with them and how to fix it. Kind of looked down our noses at them, self-righteous. They viewed us as hypocritical. Viewed us as only caring about politics or if we were going to tell somebody about Jesus, it was kind of like we didn't really care about them as much as we just wanted to kind of do this activity to get them to become a Christian and that's what really mattered to us. And I just felt convicted about all that and realized this isn't the story of Jesus. And it was in, in the process of that that God started to call me into the work that I do now with Q. It was in that journey that I, a good friend of mine gave me a book by, by Chuck Colson. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of of the late Chuck Colson, he, he was somebody that was part of the Watergate, um, you know, Nixon world, and got convicted and went to jail, but then radically met Jesus, was born again. He wrote a book called Born Again and tells the story of his radical conversion. But, but as an intellect, he went on to start to study people like Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century and others who'd come before him to really start to help Christians understand how being a Christian wasn't just about the afterlife. 
It wasn't just about trying to secure a place in heaven. It was actually about what we're supposed to do in the world today, that, that we had a role to play in God's work to renew and redeem cultures. That, that there was an active evil taking place in our world, and it would overwhelm us, it would overwhelm creation, it would overwhelm our families and our lives, and that he wanted to partner with us through his Holy Spirit to work with us, to be a part of changing things, changing and rearranging situations, having dominion, as we see in kind of the human job description in Genesis 1 and 2. And so I was so excited when I started to come across understanding about the Christian faith that was historic, that understood that becoming a Christian had a lot to do with the here and now, not just eternity. And as I started to realize that in my 20s, I realized, man, more and more people would be excited about our faith if they understood this. They didn't just understand it was about getting saved and going to heaven, but it was actually about the role I'm to play in this world, that my calling matters, that God wants to do something maybe uniquely through me that he hasn't put that assignment on anybody else that he wants me to be a part of. That's exciting. People get excited about that when they realize, man, there's meaning. And that all the great questions that every human being has ever asked, all the great questions, and every generation asks them, where did I come from, right? What went wrong with the world? Why is there evil? And how do we fix it? And then what is my purpose in life? That the Christian story historically has answered those questions better than any other system, any other religion. It's why so many of the smartest, most intellectual people that we hear about throughout history many times come around later in life to understand that the Christian story is the only one that makes sense. Chuck Colson used to say it's a comprehensive life system that makes sense of all the questions every human being raises. And so when I started to discover that, I, I just knew there was an opportunity to try to take that story into the world. And for the last 15 years, my wife Rebecca and I, we have four children. That's what we've devoted our life to, is trying to help Christians gain confidence that our faith actually can speak to some of the most difficult issues, questions, problems, challenges, not only that we, pay, we face personally, but that our society faces systemically. Like the work against injustice, this is something God's called us to be leading. Think of people like Martin Luther King, motivated by Scripture to go and pursue and fight back against injustice. I think of some of the other major challenges we face, face today, like loneliness, right? A lack of meaning in the world. The Christian story gives us meaning. Some of our research showed that when you ask the question, what actually brings the most meaning in life, that almost nine out of 10 Americans, their answer was to just pursue whatever you desire most, right? That that will fulfill you, that will bring you true happiness and joy. You see, we as Christians know that won't lead to true meaning. That will actually lead to down a dead end road. That actually what bring, brings meaning to our lives is actually submitting and surrendering them to God's purposes for our life. It doesn't mean we won't enjoy life. It doesn't mean he won't give us the desires of our heart. But they're going to be aligned with his purposes, his will, what he wants to accomplish in the world. And sometimes that may look like serving others, maybe not being served by others. It may mean sacrifice. It may mean making choices that don't always make sense to the watching world. You know, in our own life, Rebecca and I, I mean, just in this last year, so we have an 18-year-old son, Cade, um, and, and he was our firstborn. He was born with Down syndrome, which was a shock to us in the process when he was, the day he was delivered, it's when we first realized that he may have this special need. 
And the more we learned about it, we, we started to realize nine out of 10 of these children are terminated or aborted when in the pre-diagnosis process, a mother and a father learn their child might have Down syndrome. Kind of everything's against them. Insurance doesn't want to pay for the bills. The doctor doesn't want to get sued. And, and I started to realize this injustice to these children. And it started to take us down the path of going, how do we tell a better story about children with Down syndrome, how beautiful they are? I'm sure in this, a room this size, you have family members, friends, people that you work with or have gone to school with that have Down syndrome. Well, in, in our life, that became part of, we realized the meaning God had for us, that we were going to walk into a journey where we were going to help other people start to see the light that these children bring to our lives. So Cade's now 18 years old, and then he has a brother 16, and then we have a daughter who's 13. And a year and a half ago, Rebecca and I just felt compelled and invited into this unique story in China where we have a friend there who cares for special needs children. And in the process of that, we got to know about this one little girl who was five years old, had Down syndrome, and was almost you know, getting to that age where she may not get adopted. And in China, things are kind of shutting down on the adoption front. It's a, it's a hard place. It's becoming much harder to adopt right now in China. And they'll only adopt out children with special needs, heart surgeries, you know, challenges. Well, Rebecca and I, in, in our one view, we're going, wait, we're getting pretty close to like, you know, what they call empty nest. I mean, we're five years away to where we're, we're kind of going to be able to do our own thing a little bit more. And that was very appealing. That felt meaningful to me, right? <laughs> Get to go on some trips, maybe play a little more golf. Like, this, this is kind of fun. We've put in our time. And yet there was something about the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we saw this little girl and we interacted with our friend in that foster home. I was in the middle of studying the Beatitudes, and I was, I was, I was reading Scripture, and I was just coming back into contact with, like, this is who God cares about. Like, God cares more about probably this little girl and, and, and her having a home and her being loved and cared for than he cares about this ministry we have called Q. Like this is probably way more important to his heart when I really understand God's heart. And so Rebecca and I, you know, we had that moment. It was our 20th wedding anniversary. We were, we were celebrating it. And, and over dinner that night, just we were at that moment like we had to make the decision, like go or no go. In the process of, of that 24 hours, God just completely confirmed for us that we were to take that step. And so we made the decision, we're going to adopt this little girl. And so now, she, she, we went to China in December, she came back with us, she's been with us for five months, she's doing great, she, she didn't speak a lick of, China, of, of English, so she's got about 20 words now, and she's doing great, and her and my oldest, 18, it's like a total special connection. They're loving each other, They're, they get each other in a unique way, it's hard to describe. We're back into kind of changing diapers and dealing with, you know, just five-year-old stuff that we were out of. Now, to the world, they would look at that and go, why would you do that? This makes no sense. If life's really about you and your pursuit of material wealth or your pursuit of happiness or your pursuit of pleasure, which is what nine out of ten of Americans think will bring you fulfillment, you would never make that choice. But as Christians, we know God calls us into these things. He, call, he invites us, and that's what Rebecca and I described it as. We've been invited to be a part of kingdom activity. How foolish would we be to say no to that? Even though I'm 44, even though we have plenty of friends who are like, you guys are kind of crazy. Maybe you, maybe you should rethink about that. It's like, no, we're gonna, we don't know where this is going to go. There's a lot of risk with this. I may die before she's, you know, 20. I mean, who knows where it's going to go, but we're going to just trust God. You see, that brings deep meaning. 
It brings meaning in a world of chaos. It brings meaning in a world where they can't quite put their finger on how am I going to find fulfillment and meaning. Those are the kind of lives that God's called us to live. And so tonight as we think about the context, the chaos, right, the lack of understanding truth, and we, we, we look at just where the world's going, we have to ask the question, what is God up to, right? What, where's the hope in this? Because you can kind of look at the data, and I look at a lot of data, you can, you can kind of read the news, you get a sense that people think Christians are extreme, maybe irrelevant, and you start, you, you can really almost panic and be like, I'm not sure we have an answer to any of this. And there are some who, who as I said earlier, the, 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 the goal is to sort of retreat. It's just to kind of go hole up and just hang out with the people who think like you and talk like you and believe like you and, and to do that. But there's also another option, which is to, to do what I think Jesus calls us to, and we see it throughout the New Testament, which is to be provoked, not offended, but provoked to engage, to show up, to be in these places as uncomfortable as they are, as, as much as you might lack confidence that you even know what the answers are, but called to show up to be salt and to be light, to be present, to be a faithful presence in these places. And so there's three, three words I just want to give you tonight that I want you to just consider and think about. What, what would this look like in your life if you were this kind of Christian? The first word is faithful. Faithful. Simple word. You sing about it. You've heard it a lot. What does it mean to be faithful? I would submit to you that part of being faithful is, is to know that you can rest assured that how you know truth isn't going to be through just what the news tells you or what your friend tells you, but you can put your confidence in the Word of God. That the Word of God is where you're going to learn the most truth you're ever going to hear. And God works and helps us get revelation, and our experience sometimes is, is part of how we know something to be true, but only if it aligns with God's Word. We can look at kind of the last 2,000 years of church history and kind of pull wisdom from the church fathers. That helped. That's helpful. But when we go to God's Word, there are so many truths that are for the moment right now. And I'm amazed at how many Christians aren't reading their Bibles anymore who aren't familiar with this truth. It's not feeding their heart, their mind, their soul. They're not being renewed. And Romans 12 tells us that we must be renewing our minds because otherwise we will be conformed to the habits and patterns of this world. And so I want to encourage you. I don't, I don't want to beat you over the head about this. I just want to inspire you to, to get the Word of God out. Read a verse tomorrow. Just ask God to speak to you. You know how much truth is in here? I'll tell you, in, in my own life, six weeks ago, I, I woke up one morning with the worst pain I'd ever felt. It was right here. It was kind of right below my chest. And, and I didn't know what it was, and Rebecca was out of town, my wife, and so I called her, but she was on a plane. I couldn't get a hold of her, and I was, I was really nervous. Like, I, I might need to go to the ER, but my four children are home. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You don't want to alarm everybody, but you personally are starting to get a little panicked, like something's wrong. Is this my heart? What, what is this? And I let an hour or two go by and just kind of rested easy, and, and my wife landed, and I called her, and she said, you should go to the ER, just figure out what's going on. So I go to the ER, they do all the EKGs and tests, thinking maybe there was a heart thing, and they go, no, there's nothing in your heart. I think maybe you just have heartburn. So I'm like, heartburn? Like Tums? Like I just paid $3,000, and all I needed to do was go to the gas station? And so I go get Tums, and I, I do the things that they tell you to do. Well, well it doesn't help. 
The next day I wake up still in crazy pain. I can't eat anything because it's more pain. The next morning I wake up and, and in this crazy pain, I, I look in the mirror and I, and I see that my face, my arms are starting to turn yellow, jaundiced. I don't know if there's any doctors or people in the medical community here, but you know what that means. My, my liver was not functioning. And, and essentially, through a series of tests, the next couple of days, blood tests, CT scans, ultrasounds, they determined that there's a blockage in my bile duct, which, which I had a large stone blocking my liver. So nothing was getting through. And basically, I couldn't eat. It was too big to dissolve or break down. And they said, you're going to have to go into surgery tomorrow morning. Well, that particular night, we happened to have an elders meeting at our church, and I'm, a, I'm an elder. And I was in so much pain, it was one of those meetings where I knew I couldn't really go to the meeting, but, but I did what a good elder does, and I went by a, a Christian bookstore and found some oil, and I went into the elders meeting, and I said, guys, I need you to anoint me with oil. I, I need to be healed. I don't know what's happening in my body, but all I know is to do what God's word says, and, and, I, and I want you to anoint me with oil. So they anointed me with oil. They prayed over me. I was in tears. I mean, it was, it was just one of those nights, and I go home, still in crazy pain. Nothing, nothing happened. And I get home, and, and I can't get relief from the pain, and I'm holding on to the door, and I'm, I'm trying to just, like, find a space. And the only thing, and this is crazy, the only thing that would relieve me of pain is I got down like this on my knees. And the pain, the pain was just like eased just a little bit. And I found myself literally beside my bedside. And I was just like, the Holy Spirit just came on me and, was, and, and convicted me. And, and essentially in, in that moment, conv convicted me of, of the sin of, of me not treating my body well. Now this might to some of you sound just plain silly. But to me, this is one of my secret sins. It's just poor eating. And the re reason it's secret is it's because when I'm by myself, I'll go out and get something I shouldn't get. I'll go get that Chick-fil-A chocolate shake. We passed one on the way in, right? I mean, I, 9 o'clock at night, I'm picking up a kid from school. That's where I'm going. I'm going to grab that shake or gas station. I'm going to get some candy. I mean, I know that, again, to some of you sound silly. I know because you're like, really? That's your secret sin? Okay. Um, <laughs> imagine my congregation. I shared this testimony with them, and, and they were like hanging on the edge of their seats for my secret sin, and it was eating candy bars. Um, but, I, you know, I, I basically was, was uh, repenting of that. And then, and then Rebecca came in, and, and, and I just said, "Hun, I just want you to know, I, like, I've always tried to manage this, and I know you kind of know that I'm tempted to eat poorly sometimes and all this stuff, but the bottom line is, I feel like it's sin. Like, I have not treated the temple the way God's called me to, to treat this, and I know I'm 44 years old, I'm getting older, like, I just can't keep living this way. And so I confessed it to her. Well, then that night, she prays over me for 15 minutes. Put your hand right here. I'm in crazy pain. Prays over me. And, and, and it eases just enough where I fall asleep, which was a miracle. I didn't know I was going to sleep that night. And so I fall asleep and just going in for surgery the next morning. At 5 in the morning, I wake up. And I wake up, and the pain has completely broke. There's no pain. And I'm, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I need to go to the bathroom, but I'm kind of scared to stand up because it's like I don't want to move because I'm like maybe, you know, it's there, and I'm just numb right now. Well, I stand up, and I'm like, Wow. Wow, I'm, I'm not feeling any pain. I go, Rebecca, I think God healed me last night. She's like, really, really? And, and so we get up and, and look in the mirror, and I'm more yellow than I've ever been. 
And so we're like, wait, the story's not quite going the way we were thinking this was going. And she goes, well, you, you should probably call your doctor. I know you're feeling no pain, literally no pain. Call your doctor, just see what he thinks. So we call, he goes, come in, let's do one more blood test. Well, sure enough, my numbers had kept going up. He goes, you got to go to the hospital. This is life-threatening at this point. So what do I do? I, I go to the hospital. Literally, no pain, go to the hospital. Long story short, they do another CT scan. The stone is still there, okay? This makes no sense. I go, guys, I'm in no pain. My friend, my pastor comes down that day, and, and a couple guys, I go, guys, Rebecca prayed over me last night. I confess sin. Now, I'm telling you all this because I'm talking about faithfulness, right? Scripture. You know, Scripture tells us what to do when we're sick. Have your elders pray over you and anoint you with oil. And confess your sin one to another. You know, it talks about even in communion how we don't, you know, many of us are sick among us because we don't examine ourselves closely. And these are the kinds of truths that we learn in Scripture. Well, well, the doctor goes in, two-hour procedure, gets in, there's no stone, okay? I wake up groggy, and he's like, yeah, I've been doing this 20 years. This has happened less than five times where it's just gone. It was too big to dissolve. I don't know what happened, but it's gone. And Rebecca and I just look at each other like, we know what happened. God healed me. I don't know, I don't know why I was on the CT scan last night, but God healed me. And I tell you that because I just want to encourage you in a day like today where those kind of stories aren't told enough. You know, it's, it's, it's the word of our testimony that defeats the enemy. We see that in Revelation. We've got to share our testimonies. And, and I know some of you might be dealing with some ailments and sickness, and you're going, why did that happen for you? I've prayed for this. I've gone through that process, and I don't know the answer to that. What I just want to say is we can trust God. He is faithful more than we can trust so many other sources that the world today is going to tell you to trust. So the first thing is we must be faithful. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is, is be credible. Be credible with your friends, your family, your neighbors, the people you work with, your colleagues. Let's not be the kind of Christians that aren't informed, that don't really think well about the topics or issues or concerns that people have. Only interested in proselytizing, but not really listening to the hurt, the pain, the ways in which the evil one has inflicted pain in their life and created distraction and chaos. You see, if we show up in people's lives and we listen and we care and we're concerned, God's wisdom will have something to offer to that situation. When we show up and, and we just sort of give pat answers, we just kind of say these Bible story kind of, kind of words to people that aren't even Christians, maybe not even in our churches. They don't even know what we're talking about. We really do lose credibility. They don't trust us. And it was a very freeing moment for me to understand in Scripture where we're not the ones that actually convert the heart when we care about somebody knowing God. Like, we don't have the power to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's work. He just asks us to show up in their lives. He asks us to show up, to be present, to listen, to be concerned, to be compassionate. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17 says this, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, listen to this, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, here we, we see in Second Peter that we're called to, to be ready to give an answer. 
but it's because of the hope that's in you, the way in which you live your life. It's so credible that people who have questions, they come to you and they ask you, how are you doing this? Why do you believe this? And you're prepared to give an answer, but you do it with gentleness, not with you know, manipulation, not in anger, not in a way that you're constantly debating everybody. The Word of God says to do this with gentleness so that one day you won't be put to shame by your adversaries when they come against you. You see, this is the truth that's in God's Word. Also, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He's talking to the church. In the midst of this world, we're still sojourners, right? We're not just making our home here. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, part of our faithfulness, part of our credibility is doing the good works that God's put out before us. Go do those things. Do them in the name of Jesus. Go live your life well in the workplace that you've been called. You don't have to leave that place to work at a church to have incredible kingdom impact. You're going to probably have more impact, probably at the place that you're at with the people God's put around you, than you would being in, quote-unquote, full-time ministry. So go do that. Go do it with joy. Go do it with enthusiasm. Go pursue your intellect. Go grow and learn in the ways that we need to understand the world today so that you can be effective. But not only faithful and credible, the third, the third aspect and virtue of our life should be one of beauty. Let's do this and, and be beautiful, right? Let's be the, the kind of fragrance that people are drawn to. Because when we live our lives in that way, they are curious. People are so curious and hungry to know the answers to the questions that they have. But they're not often invited in because they don't quite know where to go. They don't quite know whether we as Christians are going to be the ones that can give them beauty. Listen to this in 2 Peter 1, 3-8. Just listen. Close your eyes. Listen to this. His divine power has grafted into us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Listen to this. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, and for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Go back and read that. If you want to start jumping into Scripture, go read 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. And you see just laid out for us the exact type of lives we are to live with virtue, with steadfastness, self-control. See, when we live these kinds of lives, it's beautiful. People look at us and go, I didn't know human beings could do that. You see, the Christian story ultimately leads us to have a flourishing life. The Bible is essentially an incredible, incredible book, but, but Tim Keller would refer to this as a, as a guidebook that, that helps human beings know what they were meant to do and how they were supposed to function to live a flourishing life. 
And this isn't just true for Christians. This is any human being. But if you and I aren't in the Word, if we don't know what the Word says even for our own lives, what do we have to offer in this moment of distraction and chaos and confusion? You see, I think the confusion's going to get worse. I think we're in a moment where it's continual chaos. This is what the enemy loves. And in the midst of that chaos, people are starting to realize that some of the answers the world has given them to their questions of loneliness, of meaning, of purpose, of truth are dead ends. And those answers aren't working out so well. And they're not experiencing that fulfillment. They're not, they're not flourishing. And they start to ask better questions. They start to ask questions that generations maybe even haven't asked for 30 or 40 years. And if we as the church are in a place where we can answer those questions with truth, with something that's more transcendent than just the current cultural moment, but something that's reliable, where we know truth is based in the word of God, based in the life of Jesus, it is Jesus. When we can live with that kind of confidence and our lives can emote that type of beauty, then I think when people have questions for us, our answers will in some ways be the lives that we're living, but we'll also have a confidence and a gentleness and a patience and a wisdom to know how to answer these questions better than the world could ever answer them. And when we do that, I think the church, there's going to be a rebirth, there's going to be revival, there's going to be an opportunity and a moment coming, but we as the church have to see it. We can't get so beat down by the current moment that we can't see what God just might be up to. When things look down and out, when we understand historic revivals, what we always understand is the culture looks like it's in the worst possible place. The culture looks like it is done. And the church looks the same way. When you look at the last four revivals that took place over the last 200 years, what we see is, is when the church looks down and out and the culture looks down and out, that God moves. And he moves not just through pastors. In fact, in most of those revivals, it wasn't the pastors leading the revivals. It was the people in the pews. It was the people in their prayer closet, privately, alone with God, travailing and asking God to move. And so if there's one thing we can all do, it is to pray. It is to ask God to move, as only he can move. That we would see his deeds again in this day, in our time. That they would be known not just to us, but to the world. And that would draw people to himself. So I hope, I hope tonight you don't leave discouraged by the moment, but you're encouraged. That you feel uplifted. That you know that you can trust the word of God. That might sound basic and like something you already knew, but I hope tonight it's a fresh, it's renewed. And that you also understand that God works through relationship and he works through our lives when they're grounded and rooted in him.